again. It'll be in the William 3 district. 29213, 18th Avenue South. The police scanners in TV 23's newsroom blasted at full volume. We couldn't chance missing anything. A search warrant, an arrest, or oh God, another attack. We, like everybody else, were transfixed by what happened to this 44-year-old woman. We didn't know Phyllis's name yet. Police don't release rape victims' names to the press unless they have permission from the survivor. So Phyllis remained a nameless, faceless mystery, except for what happened to her. Some of us were mesmerized by the sensational nature of the crime. Mark Williamson was the anchor at TV23. There was this woman in Akron, Ohio, that was... I don't even know what the word for it is. It's brutalized as, a, 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 as an object of, of a vicious human being who hated women. As a young reporter, I struggled with what happened to this woman. I was still dealing with my own trauma. You know, that thing I don't like to talk about out loud, would never talk about out loud in any newsroom. When you came into work in that newsroom, and before that, was all men... They smoked, they were crude, they were crass, they were terrible. And at times I tried to match them. I was crude, tough, morally challenged. I wanted to fit in, be one of the boys to prove I was up to the task that what happened to me would not have happened had I only been smarter, tougher, cruder, just like them. It never worked professionally. I still had to do the stuff I hated, like the weather and traffic reports. And from the outside, some viewers judged me, not for my work, but for what I looked like. Suddenly, I started to receive marriage proposals. WAKR's general manager warned me a man thought I was his wife and to be careful. Viewers would call in to complain I dressed provocatively. An article in the Akron Beacon Journal read in part, Carol Costello is the woman most likely to make men drool on the remote control during the evening news in Northeast Ohio. It all made me doubt my abilities and worse, blame myself for everything. Luckily, I had a champion, my boss at WAKR, Larry States. He trusted me to cover hard news, too. That's what people in the news business call stories about the economy, severe weather, and crime. I respected Larry. I did not want to let him down, so I sucked it up. I occasionally played weather girl and routinely did traffic reports for WAKR radio. In between, I did what I thought would fuel my reporting career. I answered the phones in the newsroom, hoping for a news-laden tip. Hi, this is Carol Costello, WAKR TV 23. Can I help you? I have some information on uh, who attacked that lady. I'm listening. It's a guy I know. He's a doper, prone to violence. What, what's his name? Phil. How do you know this? Listen, I just know, okay? I would have called the cops, but I can't get through. You tell him, okay? I just want to help that lady. There were a lot of calls like that. I'm reading from the police logs now. Here's one from Everett. Saw a guy hitchhiking that resembled the suspect. Another one from Sharice. She claimed the suspect placed the numbers at the carryout corner store. Here's another one from an anonymous caller. Overheard a customer talking to Mickey. He saw the suspect yesterday. They all sounded so pointless. But there was something about the caller who mentioned Phil that made me pause. Or maybe it was too green to discount it, or maybe I just wanted to help, because I actually called the Akron Police Department and shared the information. 
I came across my name in a police report from 1984. I'm looking at it now. The entry says from Carol at WAKR. Akron police took every call seriously. They set up a special hotline and assigned someone to log every call that came in, and there were hundreds of them. What detectives really needed, though, was to find the house where Phyllis had been attacked. They needed physical evidence, fingerprints, carpet fibers, the knife, witnesses. Again, Phyllis's powers of observation fueled the search. The Freedom Flyer. That black eagle on a house two streets over and a block away. That bright blue house Phyllis had glimpsed as she sat on the back porch was critical, but not easy to find. Police couldn't put Phyllis in a car and drive her around. She couldn't see. More than 200,000 people lived in Akron in 1984. There were no satellite images on Google Maps to pour through. Police had to physically go street by street. They drew graphs, took pictures, but still. It would just be like a needle in a haystack. And that's what it was, you know. Dolores was a Summit County Sheriff's deputy in 1984. Each precinct had their own mission on trying to find you know, this house and what was across the street from it and stuff. But it was just constant, you know, all hours, you know, on that. And it was just, you know, I don't think it's been nothing like it since, you know. It was as if the entire city had mobilized into a giant crime-fighting army. The outreach was overwhelming, but not nearly enough, because an incredibly dangerous man was still out there, somewhere. I'm Carol Costello. This is Blind Rage, Episode 6, Manhunt. Detective Chris Contos and his partners sifted through hundreds of tips that had come through the switchboard. Public is the greatest thing. They're like detectives for us. They'd been briefed on what their fellow detectives and the cops on the street had gathered the night before. It was a lot to sort through, and they had to do it at record speed because the community and the media pressure to snag a strong lead was intense. Uh, yeah, we made a plan to concentrate on this case and and, and canvas area, go to house to house, uh, talk to all the witnesses. There was one tip out of hundreds of tips that intrigued them. It was from someone who worked in a neighborhood bar. Why was this bar of particular interest? Why did they believe this woman when she said that there was someone suspicious in the bar? Why was that? Why did that stick out? Well, probably his description. Now, this is a neighborhood bar. The guy's never been in there before. He was nervous walking, pacing back and forth. He actually stopped somebody in the bar and said, are you going downtown? And the guy said, no, I'm going east, which is the opposite direction from there. And um, he was just pacing back and forth. I mean, he was very nervous. And it was near where the car was dropped off. Yes. Probably about two, three blocks away if you go straight, if you go straight across. Contos and his partner wasted no time. They drove to the bar called the 1286 and asked for a woman who had called in a tip about the attack. She said, I'm the manager. And there was a bartender in there. There was a Pepsi driver. And there was also a... Um, Chili Mo. <laughs> mm. Chili Mo. I want you to remember that name. Yeah. Chili Mo was a patron? Yeah. A regular patron. Yeah, yeah. And just like on the old sitcom Cheers, the 1286 was a place where everybody knew your name, especially Chili Mo. 
but I'm getting ahead of myself. All of them, the manager, the bartender, and Chili Mo, noticed the stranger who tore into the bar. He carried a gym bag. He was agitated. He took his hat off and put it back on two or three times. At one point, he opened the gym bag. It made a metallic clanking sound as he rummaged through it. He calmed himself down, not with booze, but with orange juice. He ordered two glasses at roughly 3.56, 40 minutes after police responded to Phyllis's burned-out car. Then he made his way to a payphone. He made two calls. One of those calls would be his second mistake. And then the bartender tells you the guy called a cab. That's right. He called a cab. And that, to me, that was the greatest thing that happened right there for us. The dumbest thing for him. Why was it? Why was it the greatest thing for you that he called a cab? Well, a cab drops you off someplace, <laughs> and you have an idea, and we could follow the trace, trace the description. I called my lieutenant. I said, uh, Lieutenant, uh, could you call the cab company and find out where he was dropped off? Done and done. The cab company told detectives a man named Ronald or Arnold had called for a ride. Initially, he wanted to go to a Trailways bus station five miles away, but he suddenly changed his mind. The man who called himself Ronald or Arnold said he noticed a friend and wanted to be dropped off like now. Then he changed his tune again and asked, where's the liquor store? The cabbie, a tad confused, obliged. He told Ronald or whatever his name was, he owed him $2.15. Ronald handed the cabbie two $1 bills, a dime, and five pennies. Hadn't Phyllis's attacker swiped some change from the ashtray before he torched the car? More when we return. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. And hi, Hi, True Crime Crime fans. fans. We're the co-hosts of She Goes by Jane. Every week, we'll be covering the story of a missing or unidentified woman in the United States. Stories you may have heard before. And ones whose stories didn't make it into the news. We've been covering these stories for a while, first in Amy's book of poetry, Doe, and then in Vanessa's documentary, She. But now we want to share them with you here on She Goes by Jane. And each week we'll be joined by a special guest who will read a poem in honor of the women we talk about. Can we say who? We can say who. We'll be joined by actresses like Coco Jones and Gabrielle Ruiz. And musicians like Stephanie Quayle and Kelly Moneymaker along with authors like Louise Penny and Catherine McKenzie. So check out She Goes by Jane wherever you get your podcasts or check out Evergreen Podcasts and their true crime channel, Killer Podcasts. We can't wait to bring you these stories. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do? if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you, would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now. Santos walked outside. He knew this neighborhood like it was his own. Here's Emily Pelfrey. 
you know, I know a number of detectives from Akron and they not only know like the street names, but they know the people that live on the streets. They know how people live day to day, what the stomping grounds are. They're so ingrained in the environment that it's almost like that, you know, Akron itself is its own individual. So the fact that he was able to kind of say, you know, I, I know this area, let me just look around. Let me see if something looks different than it usually does. It's that relationship that the detectives or the officers have with the city, I think, that is so important. Contos looked around, and then something dawned on him. I don't know, something hit me. I don't know, you know, it just hit me. You go to the parole office. So just based on what the cab driver told you of where he got off, you decided, oh, I'll just check into the parole office to see if he went there. Uh, yeah, yeah. Why didn't this Ronald guy go to the Trailways bus station and get the hell out of town? Why did he have to be dropped off after a four-minute ride at a liquor store when he was just in a bar and he'd ordered orange juice? Why? Maybe because he needed to go someplace else, like the parole office that was right around the corner from where he was dropped off. Contos was making inferences, and to be clear, his snap decision was big. The parole office secretary was asked if she recalled any subject coming into the office around 4 p.m. on the afternoon of March 20th. She said yes. His name was Sammy, Sammy Herring. She noted that Mr. Herring signed in on the roster at 4 p.m., but he came in at 4.10 p.m. There was a reason Sammy inaccurately signed in at 4 o'clock. The parole officer did not see anyone after 4, but on the 20th, that officer, Mr. Rhodes, made an exception. Sammy told Mr. Rhodes about his dream to become a professional boxer in the 185-pound class. In fact, he had a gym bag with him so he could work out later. Ah, the gym bag. The receptionist told Contos that Herring left his gym bag near the front desk instead of bringing it into Mr. Rhodes's office, as is required. The gym bag. The gym. When he, he brought the gym bag in, well, according to her, she said he put it in, left it in the outer uh, seating area, lobby or whatever. And, and then he signed in, and then he went to see Mr. Rhodes. And Rhodes said, Mr. Rhodes said, uh, go get your gym bag, because they have a right to search these people. When they come in, they can search everything for their safety, too. This guy could have a gun and shoot his parole officer. Uh, but he, Sammy had to be told twice, three times maybe, to go get the bag and bring it in there. And each time, Herring refused to get his gym bag. It remained in the lobby while he and his parole officer talked about why Sammy hadn't applied for a job. But that gym bag and Herring's refusal to bring it into Mr. Rhodes's office and possibly undergo a search intrigued Contos. It gave him a lead, a name, Samuel Herring. Had it not been for the gym bag, would you have kind of like put that on your list but not really felt it was important to check out Samuel Herring further? No, I would I, When he came in here and he came late and similar description, I think, I thought, I mean, he's better than anybody we had, you know, I think from then on. Contos didn't know the extent of Herring's record, but he knew it wasn't clean. Still, he had to connect Herring to the bar. It's one thing for three people to notice an agitated guy in a bar. It's another thing for them to identify him in a police lineup or photo array. 
Well, the barmaid was good. I mean, she gave us a, a physical description, and everybody brought up the thing about the bag. Bag. Chili Mo, he's a black man, and black people do better in describing other black people than a white person. They were all interviewed, um, and the bartender gave us a description. It's all similar, and it's described pretty close to the Sammy Herring. Well, we didn't know it was Sammy Herring to the person that did the crime. So, but you couldn't arrest Sammy Herring at that point, obviously, so, but you had a strong suspicion. Right. Next week, a suspect. Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage is a signature show of the Killer Podcast Network. If you enjoy this series, please subscribe and rate it on your favorite listening apps and discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com. And if you want to discover more about this case, follow me on Instagram at Carol Costello. You'll find pictures of Phyllis, newspaper reports, crime scene photos, and more. Blind Rage is a co-production of Evergreen Podcasts and Carol Costello. This episode was produced by Chris Iola and me, Carol Costello. Additional thanks to audio engineer Sean Rule Hoffman, contributor Nyjia Galladay, production director Bridget Coyne, and executive producer Gerardo Orlando. Original music is composed by Timothy Law Snyder. Our voice of the court is Douglas F. Bailey II. The information in this podcast came from my memories of the event. Phyllis Cottle, her family members and friends, former law enforcement, prosecutors, former and current journalists, police reports, and court documents. I've tried to tell this story factually to the best of my ability, but sometimes memory fails. It's been a long time, but my goal is simple. Phyllis was an amazing woman and her story of courage should be shared. Science, science, science. Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes. Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes! Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes... Yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast.